God, we bow before you with all sorts of emotions spinning, churning, gnarled up inside of us, different thoughts, different wants. Help us, heal us, mold us, shape us, our minds, our wills, our persons, our beings, our hearts. Through your word, through your spirit. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they would be taken to heart, that they would be like seeds that are planted that grow great things for your glory. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent in any way with your word, may they just be passed over, forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2,000 years ago, on the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, Jesus sent his disciples into Jerusalem to find and set up a room, the room that he had ordained ahead of time where they would celebrate the Passover. That's what Jesus' disciples did. They went into Jerusalem. They found the room, the person, the house, as Jesus had instructed. They set up for the Passover meal that evening. They did as Jesus said. Jesus joined them for the Passover meal. And Jesus did something at that meal and with that meal that his disciples certainly didn't expect and probably didn't understand, at least not that evening, but which they came to understand the next morning as Jesus' body was being broken. As Jesus' body was being whipped, as Jesus' body was being beaten, and as Jesus' blood was being shed, through a spear and through nails and through whips. Which certainly seared into the disciples' memories the meal they'd shared with Jesus the night before the Passover meal Jesus led them in. And that meal shaped their faith and that meal became a centerpiece of their life together whenever they gathered and they passed on the eating of that meal to all of the disciples who followed them and who followed them and who followed them now for 2,000 years right up until today. We read about this meal in Matthew, Mark, Luke and to a certain degree John. But the earliest reference to it is in Paul's letter, first letter to the church or the Christians in Corinth starting at chapter 10 verse 14. Listen closely. This is what Paul wrote. This is the word of God. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans and offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
And now from chapter 11 of the same book, the same letter, beginning at verse 17. In the following directives, Paul writes, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. And no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many uh, among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And that it, Paul refers to in chapter 10 as, Paul refers to in chapter 10 as the Lord's table. And in chapter 11, as we just read, as the Lord's supper. Some Christians have referred to this meal, what we now call a sacrament, as the Eucharist, which is the simply Greek word for giving thanks, or what Paul refers to in chapter 10 as the cup of thanksgiving. We and other Christians often refer to this meal as communion, which comes from the Greek word koinonia, which in chapter 10, most English versions translate as either participation in or sharing in. And elsewhere is translated fellowship, to have or to hold things in common, this unity or co-union or communion. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper, a table for giving thanks, a meal in which we all in Christ participate or that we share in with others or in which we find common ground or communion. Many of us have eaten at this table for most of our lives. This morning we're going to take a closer look and then eat and drink again together. Now, in case you didn't catch it, the Apostle Paul is not pleased with the reports he's gotten about the young church in Corinth, about sexual promiscuity in the church, about their lack of regard for one another, uh, 
about idolatry that has not been excised from the church yet, for their bragging about their individual gifts, for their selfish and unloving behavior in a number of realms. Paul is not pleased in many ways with the young church in Corinth. And so Paul writes to challenge and to correct, to instruct, and to build up. When you come together, some of you start eating before others even arrive. Some of you have much to eat and, have ver- and others have very little. Some are going hungry and others are getting drunk. And this disregard for one another and for what is right and good should not be. What you're doing is careless eating and drinking. Paul says it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, but something else. Instead, Paul says, show forth your love for one another and your unity in Christ by waiting for one another and by making sure that everyone has something to eat. Paul wants the Christians in Corinth to get this right. He really wants them to get this right. And God wants us to get these things right. And therefore, when we share this meal and when we all eat together, when we can, And we do patiently wait and kindly serve each other. But do we come to the table? Do we come to this meal? Do we come to this sacrifice? Committed to the idea that everyone with whom we share in or participate in this meal has enough to eat at home. Do everyone, do all of the people around the table, however big that table may be, have enough to eat? At the Lord's table and in the Lord's supper, we experience our union in Christ. Paul says that we participate in the body and blood of Jesus. In other words, in his death itself and in him himself. At the same time, we also affirm our union with the rest of Christ's body, which is the church, who are rich and poor, who are black and white and Latino and Asian who are male and female, who are right and who are left. At the Lord's table, we experience and affirm all of us in our differences and varieties of gifts and DNA, our union and our unity, our oneness in Jesus. In a way, our society doesn't understand this, doesn't have a rubric for this, doesn't have a forum for this. They don't understand that we belong to one another. And sometimes we don't remember that we belong to one another because we belong first to Christ. And this is why ordinarily we Presbyterians celebrate this meal together and publicly as the church and as the whole church. It's a personal meal, but it's also always a communal meal. It's a personal meal, but it's never a private meal. And so it's not something we ordinarily do alone. And I want to be clear this morning with our worship ministries team and our board of elders, our session, that celebrating this meal remotely is an inferior alternative to being together in person because it doesn't show forth as fully the part of the reality of communion that is our togetherness, that is our oneness, that is our belonging together and to each other. But it's what we can do now. It's all we can do now. And so by God's grace, we will. Jesus calls people to himself, but he also calls all of us into God's family. 
into brotherhood and sisterhood, into belonging to each other. And that is a good thing. And this meal is intended to exhibit just that. And in coming to this table, everyone ought to examine themselves, Paul writes, before they eat and drink from the bread and cup. Paul says over and over to discern, to discern. Communion isn't simply ingesting bread and juice, but rather is a time for reflection, self-examination, confession, acknowledging who we are, what we've thought, what we've said, what we've acted, who we are. Communion prompts us when understood and participated in rightly. Communion prompts us to confess our sin as individuals, as a community, as the church, and as a nation. Our subtle prejudices, our unrighteous anger, our self-righteous judgment of others, our despising our neighbors, our positions derived from fear and greed and insecurity, the violence within us. Communion prompts us to confess our sin to God and to one another and to be reconciled to both. We do not come to this table of God's grace because we are worthy or because we are good or because we are righteous, but specifically because we are not deep down inside any of those things. And we do not deserve God's mercy. But we come as beggars looking for bread and who find it at this table and who find it in God's mercy where we find forgiveness. And at this table we also remember, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. In other words, eat this in remembrance of me. In remembering me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. In other words, drink this in remembrance of me. Remember me. And what are we to remember? That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever trusts in him will not die but will have the kind of life that has neither beginning nor end. Eternal life. We remember that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, just as we have been, and yet was without sin. We remember Jesus' self-denial. We remember Jesus' servant love. We remember Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We remember his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. We remember the loneliness of a man whose friends betrayed, denied, and abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. We remember Jesus being bound and whipped. We remember Jesus falling down. We remember the nails. We remember his conversations with thieves on his right and left. We remember him asking his father to forgive the soldiers who had beaten and nailed him for they didn't know what they were doing. 
We remember Jesus' cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We remember his grief. We remember his pain. We remember the spear. We remember Jesus' death in our place. We remember that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God as Paul wrote in his next letter to the Corinthians. At this meal we remember. And at this meal and in this meal we are grateful. We give thanks. In verse 16 of chapter 10, Paul calls the cup of this meal the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. If this meal does not prompt within a person a deep well of gratitude, they have not understood the meal. We have not understood our own condition. We have not understood God's grace. But when we understand these things, our own condition and the grace of God, this meal prompts within us deep and abiding gratitude and after that and with that, joy. But this table is not about us and we should not make it about us. I remember hearing a communion message one time from a prominent mega church in Texas. And the preacher went on and on about how through communion God was going to fill everyone's cup and bless everyone's life and heal everyone's disease and restore everyone's relationships and pad everyone's account and answer everyone's prayers. And I started wondering if that preacher was talking about the Lord's table or if he was talking about my table. The Apostle Paul wrote, for, whoever, for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You announce the Lord's death. You declare the Lord's death. You make known the Lord's death, which is why we call it the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and not mine. The Greek word translate, translated here as proclaim has the same root word as the word angel or messenger. We proclaim as angels. We announce and we declare the Lord's saving, salvific, atoning, substitutionary death on our behalf to the world and for the world. This meal was instituted, that Jesus instituted is supposed to be proclamation. It is supposed to be announcement, a visible and enacted announcement of who God was and is in Jesus and what God has done and continues to do in Jesus. And the purpose of this is the same as the purpose of all creation, to bring God glory, to bring God praise, to declare from the rooftops and the mountaintops from the left coast to the right coast, from sea to shining sea, from earth to Mars, from galaxy to galaxy, that the God who is Lord and who made all things has redeemed all things and is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus' blood shed on a cross. And this gives us hope. The promise of Jesus' return and the consolation of all things, the making of all things right, the setting aside of intra-country wars, of intra 
cultural fighting, of racism and brutality and injustice and injustice, of name-calling and finger-pointing. The promise of Jesus' return means the healing of all things, outwardly and inwardly. And this gives us hope. And so what happens when we, in faith, and with the community of Christ that is the church, together eat and drink this bread and this cup? First, we affirm that we belong to Christ and then also to the community of Christ. A co-union with Christ and the communion of God's saints. Second, we examine ourselves, confess our sin and seek reconciliation both with God and one another. Third, we remember all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did. And then we give thanks for the expanse of God's grace. And we also proclaim, we announce, we declare, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. We're given hope because Jesus will come again in power and in glory. And this world as we know it today will be healed and put back together as it was intended. And then there is, or there are, more mysterious dimensions is the only way that I can say it of this table as well, of this heavenly meal. Around this table and in this table and with one another, we do not only ingest bread and juice, but we also experience, as the reformers spoke, Jesus' real spiritual presence. We are assured that God is with us in a way that words cannot alone. We are assured that the creator of the heavens is not only out there, but is also in here and is with us. The Holy Spirit acts. The Holy Spirit stirs. This has been what we see in the scriptures, but also what we have experienced ourselves. When and as, as and when God chooses, the Holy Spirit seals on us through this table, through this meal, through our eating and drinking together as one body. The promises of God, affirming that they are good, God's promises for a future, we experience in various ways being made whole once again. In this meal, we meet God face to face. We meet Jesus in person. Years ago in seminary during chapel during one of the communion services that I'd done dozens and dozens of times before. Sat through, participated, sat, walked, bread, wine, eat, drink. For no special reason at all because of anything going on in my life or anything the preacher said or anything happened that happened differently that day. I had this overwhelming sense of God's grace for me, and not just for me, but for all people, and in that moment particularly for me. An experience of God's grace that I don't mean to boast about, 
because it was not about me, but in which I felt like I was immersed in God's grace as I'd never been before, like I was experiencing a flood of God's grace. And I just sat there on the pew toward the back of the sanctuary or the chapel and just wept and wept and wept. Not tears of sadness, not tears of anger, not tears of confusion, but tears of joy, tears of gratitude, tears of thanksgiving, being immersed in God's grace, which is our only hope for this life and the life to come. God doesn't always do those kinds of things in people's lives. He rarely does in mine. But he does in mine and ours. When we come, when we gather, when we sit, when we kneel, when we bow, when we look to him and when we get these things right, as Paul wanted the Corinthians to do. God is for us and in this meal, God is with us. He declares his glory, his praise, his goodness, and not just to us, but to the whole world. May that proclamation go out this morning as we eat and drink together. Let's pray. We ask God that you would have mercy on us. For the past few days, many of us have been examining ourselves in preparation for this meal. Remembering Jesus' death on our behalf, reminding ourselves and being reminded by your Spirit of our brokenness and our depravity, of our anger and jealousy, of our greed and pride, of the things to which we hold on too tightly and the things we do not hold on to tightly enough. We confess our self-righteousness. We confess that we have not loved our brothers and sisters as we have wanted to be loved. We have not loved our enemies hardly at all. Even though when we were still enemies of yours, you loved us in Christ Jesus. We bow before you humbly remembering Jesus' death in our place. His agonizing crucifixion so that we might be forgiven. We thank you for your mercy and ask that you would pour out on your people, us who are together this morning, and all of your people, the abundance of your grace, that you would bring together a nation, that you would bring together a world, that you would bring together your church, that you would bring together us and those with whom we are sideways. And that you would make us one as you are one, that you would unite your family as you have united us to yourself. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.